Our scripture reading this morning is from Daniel 7, verses 1 through 14. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then, as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is God's word. So Paul, when he was with the Ephesian elders, this is a new church that he had planted about 10 years earlier, and he was recounting his time with them and he said this therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God Paul looks back on his time with the Ephesians and he says I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God now shrink has the idea of there was influence, there was intimidation, there were potential repercussions if he talked straight and if he told them the whole thing. Uh, some might be selective about what they communicate to avoid consequences. Paul was not such a one. I am pledging to you to give you straight up with nothing held back what Daniel 7 through 12 have to say. Daniel 7 through 12 matters no less than Daniel 1 through 6. We love the stories, 
But some, for some reason, by chapter 7, people's attention falls off. Let me make something very clear. If you don't understand Daniel 7 through 12, you are at risk. And I serve you not if I don't help you understand what it has to say, because it has things to say that are profound in their implications for us. So Daniel chapter 1 through 6... Tell us some key highlights from the life of Daniel. We get to look at this young man. He starts at, what, age 16 maybe and goes to age 86. And Daniel is exemplary from day one to the end. Then chapters 7 through 12 provide excerpts from Daniel's memoirs or his prayer journal. And through some specific visions, God gave Daniel glimpses of the future. So before we jump into chapter 7 and start reading or following along in his memoirs, I want to uh, help us kind of get our bearings a little bit. So let's do a little history lesson here, okay? And then we'll see how it connects with Daniel. So Daniel's ministry lasted about 70 or more years. And Daniel's, the majority of his time was spent during the time that Babylon was at the height of its glory. And so I've made it gold in what you see on the screen because it's the golden empire in Nebuchadnezzar's vision in chapter 2. After Babylon, Daniel actually had some of his ministry time at the beginning of the silver era, which was the silver part of the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw in chapter 2 which is Medo-Persia. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was the king for the majority of the Babylonian season. He died in 562. He was succeeded by someone named Amal Marduk and two other kings. They only lasted between the three of them six years to 556. That's when Nabonidus became the king and Belshazzar, who was maybe his son and Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, was co-regent who was responsible for the Babylonian era. That all ended when the handwriting was on the wall in 539, and then Darius became the king, who was the king of Medo-Persia, but also over Babylon. So that's some basic history. Let's add a few more facts to it, all right? The fall of Nineveh occurred in 612, and I would love to talk to you about what happened with that, because Jonah had gone to Nineveh, they had repented, And now 100 years later, they actually did fall. In 605, Battle of Carchemish, that's when Daniel plus his three friends were taken to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar by that time was supreme. In 597, a second wave of exiles was taken from Babylon to, or taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. Then in 586, we have the fall of Jerusalem. So what you're looking at is this season of ministry that is Daniel's season, and you're getting a sense of some of the events that were occurring. There was a lot happening on the international scene. So let's take those narrative chapters and see where they fit, all right? So in chapter 1, Daniel refuses the king's choice food. In Daniel 2, Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And in Daniel 3, his three friends go into the fiery furnace. 
All of that happened in the early years of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. In chapter 4, God says to Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to fix your pride problem. And that happens near the end, probably 8 or 10 years before the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, which ended in 562. The next two chapters, chapters 5 and 6, actually come at the end of the Babylonian era and the beginning of the Medo-Persian era. So the writing on the wall, remember that? That's chapter 5. That happens on actually the last day of Belshazzar's reign. And then chapter 6, which is the lion's den, that actually occurs in about the first year of uh, Darius's reign. So what let's do is let's kind of take those and push them down lower so that you can now see chapters 7 through 12. Where do they fit in this chronology? Because they didn't happen after event number 6. Let me show you where they fit, all right? First is the chapter we're looking at today, and it's actually going to take us three sermons to move through this chapter, especially because I'm spending a lot of time introducing chapters 7 through 12 this morning. The four beasts and a little horn, which is chapter 7, that actually began in the first year of Belshazzar's reign. Uh, Chapter 8, which is about a ram and a goat and a little horn, actually occurs in the third year of Belshazzar's reign. Then chapter 9, which is about 69 weeks, occurs in the first year of Darius's reign. In fact, it is possible that the prayer that got Daniel put in the lion's den was the prayer that's actually captured in chapter 9. And then chapters 10, 11, and 12 all constitute one vision, and that occurred in the third year of Darius. Now, you might be inclined to say, uh, okay, so how do you know that, Jim? How do you know that these things happened when they did? Well, because Scripture tells me so. Daniel 7.1 says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream. So the chapter we're looking at this morning, chapter 7, we know that that actually happened in the first year of Belshazzar's reign. So Daniel hadn't been in the lion's den. There had not been writing on the wall yet when he had this vision. That vision actually is a, connected to what happened in chapter 2. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar saw this vision of this grand image? Well, now in chapter 7, we're going to get another look at the same material, but with a little bit different perspective. Chapter uh, 8, it says, In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. So here, chapter 8, we know, happens in the third year of Belshazzar. Interesting, isn't it? Because in chapter 5, when we have the handwriting on the wall, Belshazzar was someone who wasn't paying much attention to Daniel. But Daniel was very much paying attention to what's going on and had this vision. In chapter 9, he says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. So Daniel 9 is in year 1 of Darius's reign which also happens to be the time period in which the sixth chapter occurred. And then the last one, chapters 10 through 12, it says, in the third year of Cyrus, and when I did that sermon, I told you that Cyrus and Darius, those are two names for the same guy. 
It says, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. The reason I'm telling you this is just so you can understand, as these visions are playing out, it's within the context of a narrative that is found in chapters 1 through 6, and it's not like it comes later. Uh, Chapters 7 and 8 actually happen 20 years before the lion's den. Much of the prophecy that's in chapters 7 through 12 has been fulfilled. It was future for Daniel, but much of it is played out in history. But a significant amount pertains to events yet future, possibly our future. And I would not be a good pastor if I didn't talk straight to you about what it's telling us is coming. All right, what's coming? Well... Jim, are you alone in this? No, I'd like to think that Jesus would back me up. Here's an excerpt from Mark 13. Listen to what he says. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, and that's a reference to Daniel, one of these visions, he says, when you see this event that Daniel told you about, then those who are in Judea, and by the way, reader, understand this, not just people at the time that he wrote it but anybody who's reading it understand this then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains for those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of creation which God created until now and never will in other words when this event in Daniel happens things are going to get so bad it's unprecedented Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. In other words, this is an extinction-level event, except for the goodness of God. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And listen to this. This is Jesus talking. Take heed. Behold. See this. I have told you everything in advance. I have given you adequate advance information in order for you to be able to not just know what's coming, but prepare accordingly. Jesus has told us everything we need to know in advance, pertinent to coming climactic events. And some of the information comes through Daniel, according to Jesus. And as we will see in later chapters, Satan actually has a vested interest in keeping this information from the saints. So it matters profoundly. When Jesus says, in the passage I read from Mark, when Jesus says, behold, I've told you everything in advance, it's his way of saying, I want you to be ready. And understanding Daniel is part of our readiness plan. So hopefully I've got your attention and we're ready to jump into this book. Now, there are two parts to Daniel. Chapters 1 through 6 give us insight into how a prevailing saint or prevailing saints, if we include his three friends, transit trials. Chapters 7 through 12 give us insight into the types of trials that we should be prepared to face. Daniel 7 through 12 is saying, get ready to stay the course. Here's what's coming. And Daniel 1 through 6 is the sermon illustration Here's how Daniel did it. Because we need to be a people who are Daniels in light of what's coming. 
sometimes people will not remember the sermon, but they'll remember the sermon illustration. They'll remember the story. The story is Daniel 1 through 6. The sermon is Daniel 7 through 12, and we need to pay attention. Now, in chapters 1 through 6, what did we see in this guy, Daniel? Now, three things really stand out to me. One, God alone is non-negotiable. We saw that in chapter 1, in chapter 3, in chapter 4, and in chapter 6. God alone, no other gods before me. That is a non-negotiable. Second thing we saw in multiple chapters is God can save from, but he can also save through. God saved Daniel from the fiery furnace, but he saved his three friends through the fiery furnace. Uh, We saw in the case of chapter 6 that God saved Daniel through the lion's den, and God can do that. And then... The last thing that really stands out to me, and you can see this in chapters 1 through 6, is make the truth known to those in your circle. Daniel was talking straight with Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel was talking straight with Belshazzar. Daniel was talking straight with Darius. Now, he could have easily said, man, I need to keep a low profile here. He didn't do that. I am so struck by the ways in which what I see in Daniel answers to some things that Revelation tells me will be true of God's people at some date in the future. It says, and this is Revelation 12:17. so the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children, listen to this, who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Daniel kept God's commandments and held to his testimony. And in some day yet future, Satan is going to specifically target those who do likewise. He's going to be interested in the Daniels. In Revelation 12:11, same chapter, he says, and they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. There's that again. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. Daniel and his friends' devotion to God was more important than life itself. And in some day yet future, God's people will need to do likewise, and they will overcome. Now, there's a whole bunch more I want to tell you about uh, Daniel and part two that connects to our future. This is going to have to suffice for now. I'll tell you more as we continue through the book. Today we want to stand beside Daniel and see what he saw as recorded in chapter 7 verses, and we're actually going to just cover verses 1 through 12. So first let's remind ourselves of what Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream in chapter 2. He said, I see a head of gold in this statue. That was Babylon, which lasted 70 years and was demonstrating the power of awe to move people. Then he saw an upper torso of silver, which was Medo-Persia, which lasted, we now know, 200 years. And this was about the power of wealth to manipulate and control people. Greece was the bronze 
layer, and Greece lasted about 300 years, followed by Rome 500 years plus an unknown period after, with iron legs and feet showing the power of domination. So Nebuchadnezzar is seeing the span of human history leading up to the return of Jesus, and he sees this amazing image that he probably uses as model for chapter 3, the image that he wanted everybody to bow down to. In chapter 7, Daniel's view is a little different. He's seeing the same four empires, but he sees Babylon as a lion slash eagle who man walks. He sees Medo-Persia as a lopsided bear eating ribs. And you're supposed to, on a sermon, do something you know that kind of fits with the holidays, and we've got Thanksgiving coming up. And so here's a lopsided bear who's had three ribs, and he's still hungry. So Thanksgiving? I don't know. Anyway, the lopsided bear is eating ribs. Uh, Greece is a four-headed leopard, and Rome is an iron-toothed monster with pride issues. So this is not necessarily this glorious image. This is terrifying. I mean, we're used to seeing animals in a zoo, but not necessarily in the wild. I like watching the, the show alone. And I remember watching a certain episode or series in which there were bears all around them. They were not going, oh, hi there, little guy. <laughs> they were terrifying. These are terrifying creatures. Now, in this image, chapter 7, something is not new, that there will be four human empires that will, will be replaced by an enduring fifth kingdom that will have no connection to the previous four. That's not new. We've seen that in chapter 2. But here is something that is new. In the fourth empire, one small horn will displace three and dominate the others and this horn is identified as a proud man that's a new piece of data all right let's work through the text uh, verse by verse and i'm going to have to just hit some highlights but let me give you a few highlights in verse one it says that daniel has a dream and writes it down and we know from the the time marker that this is in 556 bc this is 20 years before the lions then but he has a vision that is about 45 years after Nebuchadnezzar's vision of this image. And he's in the last phase of the golden stage of world empire. Uh, the last king is currently seated on the throne, both Nabonidus and Belshazzar. And so God decides it's time for us to revisit some topics that we just introduced in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. You are, he doesn't know it yet, but you are in the last phase of the golden part of the image. In verse 2, he shifts to first person. He basically says, I. And he tells us that this is an excerpt from his, kind of his, his diary. He says, here's what was happening. There are four winds, which is a way of saying all the winds, you know, every direction of the compass. So all manner of wind is going. There's a churning large water body. And four beasts, verse 3, emerge from this water. Now, according to Daniel 7, 17, which we won't come to for a few weeks, these are kings. 
each of these beasts represents a prominent king who is the king over a prominent empire. So first we have verses in verses 4 through 6 we're introduced to a lion with eagle wings who is restored to manhood. I find that fascinating because in the case of Nebuchadnezzar it actually says that he became like a cow and he had kind of like bird wings and then it says he's restored to manhood he's made to walk as a man then we're introduced to this lopsided bear who has consumed three ribs but he's still hungry then a four-headed four-winged leopard now what are all these that comes in the interpretation part of the dream that's coming the leopard and others were told receive their dominion it is given to them by someone else and then verses 7 through 8 were introduced to this fourth beast who exceeds the previous three for power and terror he is fundamentally different you know he is a beast with iron teeth and he has ten horns this is scary uh, three of the horns are actually pulled out by the roots by another horn which is identified as a proud man now this is not human evolution and progress you know we're not seeing wow humanity's really on a great course what you're seeing here is at least the movement of these empires it's getting scarier and scarier now in verses 9 and 10 the scene shifts to a hall of judgment and Daniel at first as he's watching this is not expecting God but the evidence fits with no one else and it's very clear that he's seeing God and divine judgment is about to be pronounced these empires of man are going to be judged the little horn verses 11 and 12 is destroyed and cast into the fire and remember this little horn is actually a person the other beasts these four exist even after they lose their previous positions of dominance but not forever so for example it's not as if the area that is Babylon has dropped off the map there is still a presence there there's still a Middle Eastern presence but they don't have the position of dominance and then Daniel sees something that is truly unexpected he's going what and you have to wait for two weeks for me to explain it <laughs> what I want to do is help you extract some things from this because we've already seen some things that are going to help you be able to deal with effectively flourish triumph in a world that is going to go increasingly south because that's the purpose of the book of Daniel it's not just for us to go wow Daniel is amazing it is for us to be able to say in light of what is coming how can I be like Daniel well Jim you just said in light of what is coming what's coming we've already been given some clues in Daniel 7:21, now I realize this is in a passage we'll do in a couple weeks he says I kept looking 
And that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. Don't believe the lie that when you come to Jesus, everything will get better. Your salvation is secure. The one thing that matters. But there may be hard decisions. There may be consequences you need to accept. Here, this horn, which is a person, is actually looking for those who identify with Jesus Christ. And he's taking them on. Don't be surprised by opposition. Expect it. And by the way, don't assume when you encounter opposition or hard things that God is mad at you. That was the problem of Job's friends, right? Hey, Job, obviously you're on God's you know, bad side. What did you do? Actually, the trials of Job were not a product of God's dissatisfaction with him, but his approval. He's the one who said, hey, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He's the real deal. Satan says, oh, no, he's not. Who knew his man? God did. Because Job demonstrated he's the real deal. Now, did he have some things to learn? Yes. But the trials he went through were not a product of God's displeasure, but a product of God's pride, in, and I mean it in a good way, pride in his son, in his child. Don't be surprised by opposition. Expect it. Don't assume God is mad at you. Here's God's opinion when you encounter hard things. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. That's the truth. When people's hate for Jesus and the things of God puts you in the crosshairs, you are demonstrating your true identity. We are moving. I, I'm, I, I want you to understand. I don't know if it will happen in my lifetime, whether it will be my children's. Or, I don't know. But we are moving toward a time when it is going to be costly in a way that goes beyond anything we've ever known to name the name of Jesus. When we are on the receiving end of that, that's actually an encouragement. You're the real deal. I, I'm so amazed when I read about the uh, early apostles. They had just been flogged by the Jewish high council. And I can't imagine what that was like. I mean, I would be moaning and limping home. <laughs> Instead, this is what we read. So they went out from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his namesake. They were high-fiving each other and going, this is awesome. God actually thought we were worthy to be able to incur the same kind of thing that Jesus did. This is amazing. <laughs> 
Daniel 7:17 tells me we are coming into a time where to name the name of Jesus will be costly. Do not be afraid, but do not be surprised. Indeed, if you encounter cost for naming the name of Jesus, thank him for the fact that you have evidence that you're the real thing. Second thing we can learn in Daniel 7, 9 and 10, it says this, and the ancient of days took his seat, the court sat, and the books were opened. In essence, all of these empires, all people, are going to be judged by God. He's the one who's going to decide, did we do what matters? Even when we feel good about our lives. You know, I really feel good about myself. Well, you're not, I'm not qualified to render a good opinion. <laughs> Paul says, I don't examine myself because I'm not qualified, but God is. His is the only opinion that matters. So forget likes. Only what he thinks matters, truly matters. So ask him, what do you think I need to do? What do you think I need to know? I want to know what you think I need to know, God. This passage is telling us that the truth will prevail, that justice will prevail. Before the court that truly matters, God's people will be exonerated. Live for him, leave it with him, it will be worth it. No matter what comes, live for him. All in, it will be worth it. Number three would be, this is from Daniel 7, 21. Uh, again, I'm reading the same passage, but I'm giving you a few more uh, verses. It says, that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the ancient of days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. What's interesting to me is that our defeat is not defined by prevailing opposition. It says he was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. There is a day coming when the opposition against those who name the name of Jesus will be overpowering. But that's not a victory. The victory is when I say, I don't care if you take my life. I'm devoted to Jesus. Doesn't matter what you do. Your defeat is not defined by prevailing opposition, but by denial of him. Remember what we saw? Saved through, as well as saved from. I am absolutely confident, I am absolutely confident of this, that God can do whatever is necessary to save me, and yet, if he doesn't save my life, it doesn't matter as long as I don't deny him because then the saints will be given the kingdom. So what about you? Where are you at? Jesus said this. Listen to what he said. This is from Matthew 
everyone who hears these words of mine. So here's Jesus. He's talking. He's saying, here's my words. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Everyone who hears these words of mine, what are those? If you were to boil down Jesus' words into a simple one-sentence summary, it would be, repent for the forgiveness of sins. Act on that. Receive forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ and then live out of that no matter what. And it will be worth it. It is possible that there are some in this room who have never named Jesus as Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of sins. That's an easy problem to solve. Prayer is a way of just talking with God and saying, God, you tell him whatever you want to tell him. What I'm going to do is give anyone in this room who has never declared themselves as a follower of Jesus to do so. And then I have a few words for the rest of us. So let's bow our heads. And if this prayer, if you are interested in embracing Jesus right now as your Lord and your Savior for the forgiveness of sins, you can pray a prayer, simple prayer, just like this. God, I am a sinner. And I deserve eternal separation from you. But Jesus Christ came because he loved me and died on the cross for my sins. And I am choosing this day and for the rest of my days to name him as my Savior and his blood as payment for my sin. Thank you for saving me. In the name of Jesus, amen. For those of you who know Jesus, I have a question for you. What cost would make you hesitate to keep on testifying? Jesus is who he said he was. Jesus did what the scriptures say. Jesus has said what he said in his word. I embrace and testify to the name of Jesus. What would make you say, well, I'm going to kind of keep a low profile on that. I would love for you to pray, and I don't know what your heart condition is, but Jesus, who is roaming through this room even now, his spirit is, says the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth that he might strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. He's looking in this room for hearts that are completely his. If there is something that the enemy could use as leverage to prompt you to kind of keep it quiet. God can show you that. As we work through the remainder of this book, God can show you that. You can address it now. You can become someone who does not love life more than he loves Jesus. If God will show you whatever that is. So what I'd like to do would be pray for you.
for everyone in this room, that God will, over the course of our movement through Daniel 7 through 12, make it very clear, is there something in my heart that the enemy could use as leverage to make me deny you? Show it to me. If you want to pray that prayer with me, let's all bow our heads. And if you want to pray that prayer, I will express it, and you can use my words as yours. Let's pray. Father, we know that you know the state of our hearts. You know what motivates us. Father, we are giving you permission, not that you need it, but we are giving you permission to reveal to us whatever there might be in our hearts that the enemy could use as leverage to prompt us toward denying you. We want to be those who are like Daniel's three friends. We want to be those who are like Daniel. Help us by showing us whatever we need to deal with and then help us to be able to put that on an altar and to say, I live for you alone. I love you alone. I don't even care if my life is taken. I will not budge from that place. Help us to become that kind of people. We are pleading in the name of Jesus, who is our Savior. Amen.